When it comes to investing, retirement, and legacy planning, the decisions you make today can greatly impact the quality of life for both you and your loved ones tomorrow. Good news. You've found the Growing Your Wealth radio show with Brian Evans. Brian is the founder of Madrona Financial Services, and with his background as a CPA, he brings a unique perspective to the investment and financial planning world. So get ready for an hour full of the most comprehensive financial information on the radio. Welcome to Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans. Thank you so much and welcome to Growing Your Wealth, the radio show that gives you the straight talk and honest answers you need to invest better, live better, retire better, and give better. My name is Jeff Shade and I am just here to ask the questions, of course, but the words of wisdom and solid advice come from Brian Evans, CEO of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. How you doing today, Brian? Doing great. Thanks, Jeff. Always glad to hear that, Brian. I hope our listeners are doing well today, too. Thank you so much for joining us on the radio once again. If you hear our radio show today and there's anything that you've missed or you'd like to hear the show all over again. You can hear our show two ways. You can actually listen to the radio or you can go to the website. Actually, this would be three ways, madronafinancial.com, hear it there, or we are a podcast. Wherever you get your podcast, simply go there, type in Brian Evans, Growing Your Wealth, and you'll have access to about 116 shows, almost any topic you can think of. We've got a show on it right there. Well, Brian, here it is 2022 already, but I want to talk about 2021. This is our annual year in review special. So let's start off with the S&P 500 valuation measures, and this is a forward P.E. ratio. Now, I am looking at a chart, a graph. I know our listeners can't see that, and you're sort of the doctor of finance because this looks like an EKG. Interpret this a little bit, if you would, please. Yeah, I'm going to try and make this good radio. You know, <laughs> I don't have a visual. I'm looking at the graph, and unfortunately, if you're listening, you're not. But I will do my best to interpret this, and, and you know, part of the year in re- review is not hey, the S&P is X or the Dow is Y. You can hear that every day uh, or look it up every day. Um, I'm going to spend this hour getting inside the numbers, behind the numbers, what they mean, you know, try and get some knowledge out of it. It, it drives me crazy when people say, the S&P was up 14 points today. Okay, what does that mean? Yeah. I don't even know what that means. Is that 1%, a tenth of 1%, 14? It, it's, it doesn't really mean anything. So I'm going to try to make this a little bit more interesting, of course. So the first thing I wanted to start with is valuation measures. Now, we all know that price earnings ratios, it's the price of a stock uh, over its annual earnings. So if a, a stock is priced at $100 a share and it earns $10 net profit per share, you're 100 over 10 or, or 10x PE. If a, that same $100 stock earned $5 a year in profit, it's at trading at 20 times its earnings. Well, right now, you know, at the end of the year, the S&P was trading just above 20 times earnings. So that's roughly 5%. You know, it's 5% return. Essentially, that's not what the stock market does. That's just profit margin. It's 5%. For every $100 you invest in the S&P 500, your share of the net profit is 5 bucks. So it's trading just over 20. Now, what does that mean? How does that relate to history? Well, the 25-year average is about 17 so it's, it's slightly above the 25-year average. Has it ever been this high before? Yes, it was this high for several years, the late 90s. It got up to about 24 times earnings. What's the lowest it's been? Well, really the lowest it's been was about 12, 13 times, and that was after 2008. So that was kind of an anomaly, as were the late 90s when the dot-coms were cruising along. So the 25-year average, again, 17 times earnings. The S&P is about 21. So some people would say... Well, that's pretty alarming. It sounds like it's really high. Well, it is high relative to where it's been. However, 
our expectations of earnings have changed because what has happened in those 25 years is that interest rates are way down. So if, if you got a 5% profit margin, that doesn't sound that great, but it sounds really good compared to interest rates you might receive on a bond these days. Because 25 years ago or 20 years ago or 15 years ago, you could get really high bond yields. So they were way more attractive. You could get really high yields in real estate, way more attractive. And so we've seen bond yields compress. We've seen real estate yields compress. We've seen stock market profit margins, you know, P.E. ratio valuations compress too. So I think they're all one and the same. So I'm not as alarmed as I might have been normally to, to see that the price earnings ratio is high relative to where it's been because I think that's our new normal. So, Brian, let's talk about corporate profits now and sources of total return last year in 2021. Yeah, so the price-earnings ratio that I was describing is just kind of a snapshot. It's like a Polaroid. But what's equally as important is the growth of earnings. Because if I've got, if I'm, okay, you know, you said it's 20 times earnings, so that's 5%. Well, if my earnings aren't going up, I can expect that to be pretty constant. If they're going down, then that's alarming. But if they're going up then I'm going to look at that number differently. Because, you know, when you look at tech stocks, for instance, you're ne- you would never buy Amazon or, or Google or Microsoft or Apple because they always have really high price earnings ratios, or Tesla especially. But the growth of their earnings is so substantial that you might buy them for that reason. And so we want to look at that too. So that's essentially the peg ratio. I won't get into price earnings over growth of earnings. But I'll try and take another graph, which you can't see, and make some sense of it. The earnings estimates, consensus earnings estimates of the S&P 500 has been growing substantially. In the 90s, it was about $25 as a relative figure. I won't worry about what that's based on. We'll call it 25 was its measure of profitability. That went to 50. Profits doubled by the year 2000. It went to 100 by the year 2012. And it went up to about 150 in, the, in you know, 2018, 2019. But then we had COVID and it dropped. So earnings dropped across the board from, from the relative figure of 150 in the S&P to about 125. But the consensus for 2021 is it'll be over 200. So we had a massive increase in profitability of S&P 500 companies. And in fact, that's projected in the next two years based on JP Morgan's projections that that's projected to go to 250. So we're seeing profits accelerate, continue to accelerate uh, corporate profits of the S&P 500 companies. The estimates on that from JP Morgan is that those are those are accelerating at a rapid rate because if we're at 250, the relative measure of 250 in a couple years, we only have to go back about five years where it was half that. So we're seeing the S&P 500 essentially double their profit in about a span of six, seven, eight years. We're talking about the year in review with Brian Evans of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. So, Brian, let's talk more about profits and uh, wages. Yeah, so we're seeing wages go up as a percentage of profits of the S&P 500. So you might normally say, oh, if wages are going up, then uh, that must mean corporations aren't going to make as much, right? Well, no, because of technological advancements, we've been talking about this for years on the radio, that we're we're seeing uh, technological advances uh, make companies more profitable across the board in every sector, not just technology. It could be 
energy. It could be consumer, uh, you know, Amazon, you know, look at that. They, they sell stuff. I mean, and technology is why they're, you know, expanding their profit margins and so forth. So we're seeing labor costs up to an all-time high as a percentage. However, the profit margins of the S&P 500 have been averaging about, you know, 6 7% of, of sales for many, many years. I mean, you, you can go back to the 40s, and the S&P 500 is between 5 and 7% of sales. The profitability, uh, gee, as I look at this graph, for about 60 years. I mean, mm-hmm. it was... It's not until the, the early 2000s, then it, it popped up. It went above that 7% threshold, and it was kind of between 7 and and 9 for several years. And then the last five or six years, it's been between 9 and 11. And so we're seeing the profit margin increase over time. Now, again, I think that's due to, of course, technological advancements. Even though they're paying more for labor, computers and and the technology they afford, corporations allow them to be much more profitable, uh, take advantage of economies of scale and so forth. And the global market that's opened up in these years, too, where we can sell to other countries and so forth, there's an enormous middle class now globally that didn't exist 20 years ago. And so uh, the projection is that we're going to be at an all-time high profit margin uh, based on sales of the S&P 500. Brian, next up, S&P 500 index concentration, valuations, and earnings. In other words, how big are companies? Yeah, what's what's interesting, what I just mentioned was that uh, those particular companies, you know, Apple, Microsoft, Google, uh, Amazon, Tesla, they're always trading at high valuations. And they are becoming more and more dominant in the S&P 500, which is kind of interesting. So the S&P 500 is obviously 500 companies approximately. Now, we're looking at, going to look at the top 10 stocks. So 10 out of 500 stocks, what do they represent in the index? Well, five years ago, they were about 15 to 20% of the index, though just those 10 companies. Now they represent almost a third of the entire index. So when you invest in the S&P 500, a third of your money is going into 10 stocks. It's not spread out evenly over 500. That number keeps increasing because those stocks are doing so well and their valuations are really high. So you would never look at them and go, okay, what, well, what's the current valuation? Well, they're trading at about 33 times profits. And you might normally go, wait a second, 33X, that's too high. I thought you said the long-term average was 17. It is. They, they trade about twice, but their growth of profits is so high. And their projections of creating new business lines and so forth, we know that these companies are are very entrepreneurial. And so that's why they will continue, you know, they have continued to grow all these years. But I just want to mention that the top holdings in the S&P 500 really dominate uh, what your returns are going to be because so much money is now, again, almost a third of your investment in the S&P 500 is non-diversified. It's 10 companies. It's not that diversified as you might have thought. Talking about the state of the market in 2021 with Brian Evans. Next one up here, uh, Brian, is returns and valuations by sector. Yeah, there's a lot of numbers on this graph, and so I'll just kind of fly through it. Uh, Different sectors have different valuations. If we look at the forward price-earnings ratio of the different sectors, uh, the ones that appear to be the best value right now are energy and utilities, which is common because they aren't high-growth industries. They're, they're kind of steady eddies. Their prices are very volatile because they're commodities, but they don't have, you know, we're not growing new 
electricity demands or anything like that. They kind of are what they are. So they're trading at about 11 times earnings. And the, the, high, the highest valuation is technology, which it always is, it seems like, and consumer discretionary, which is kind of surprising to me. So consumer discretionary is, is trading at a multiple of about th- over 30 times earnings. Technology is at 28. Everything else is somewhat in between. So kind of in that, that range, as I mentioned, uh, you know, the forward price earnings ratio of the S&P is about 21 times earnings right uh, at the end of 2021. And so do with that number what you what you will. It, you know, you might say again that the market seems overvalued, uh, but I'm going to kind of counter that with, well, everything seems overvalued. Bonds seem overbought because rates are so low. Real estate's gone up so much and yields are low because it's overbought. The stock market's price earnings ratio is high because it's overbought. CD yields are really low because it's overbought. That's pretty much the four areas, four of the five areas you can invest in. They're they're all kind of overbought uh, based on historical measures. But I think that we've had a massive paradigm shift as investors. We're willing to accept a lower yield given where we're at. You're listening to Brian Evans. We're talking about our annual year in review. It is a show that we do every year where we recap the previous year. This, of course, 2021. If you would like a financial review with Madrona Financial Services, not going to cost you anything. If you're looking to hire a new financial advisor and you have at least $500,000 or more in investable assets, Contact Madrona Financial for your complimentary financial review. 844-MADRONA is the number to call. 844-MADRONA. You can also request it online at madronafinancial.com. We're going to take a break. Brian, be back with more of our annual year in review when our show continues right after this. Tired of getting only half the story? We've got you covered with the most comprehensive financial information on the radio. You're listening to Growing Your Wealth with your host, Brian Evans. Now, here's Brian. Welcome back to the show. I'm Brian Evans, CEO of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. In this segment, we're going to be talking about J.P. Morgan's year in review. And Brian, let's talk about federal finances here. Basically, how do we get money and how do we spend it? Yeah, I want to spend a little bit of time on this. This isn't uh, talking about the market so much. This is talking about our national income and expenses. That's a big topic, you know, because we're borrowing a lot of money and so forth. This isn't the borrowing. This is just where do we get it? Where do we spend it? So the federal government last year for 2022, the the budget is uh, about $4.5 trillion. And 42% of that came from income taxes on individuals. Uh, about 6% of that came from corporate taxes. So half of the income the government gets is from income taxes. 25% is from uh, Social Security and Medicare. And then about 6% is from other fees and tariffs and so forth. Well, that doesn't add up to 100%, does it? That, that sounds like it added up to about 79%. Why is that? Well, because 21% is not accounted for because that's how much we spend and that's what we borrow. So there's another 21% that's borrowed right now, about $1.15 trillion to get to the budget. So we collect roughly $4.5 trillion and we spend a little bit over $5.5 trillion. Where do we spend that money? Well, 26% is on Medicare and Medicaid. That's our biggest expense. 22% is Social Security. So that adds up to almost half of the money that's spent is just that. Uh, defense spending is about 14%. Non-defense, 16 So there's another 30 combined. There's 6% of our budget is spent on interest on the national debt. 
And then finally, uh, there's other expenditures of about 17%. So again, we're, our spending is about $5.5 trillion. Our inflows are about $4.4 trillion. Those are the percentages of inflows and outflows of our budget. So Brian, let's switch over to consumer finances. In other words, the consumer balance sheet. Yeah, the consumer balance sheet, uh, what's, what I found also interesting is that our national debt is approximately one times or 100% of our GDP, so our, our entire domestic gross, gross product. Now, if we look historically, though, from the 60s to the 70s, the 80s and 90s, that number was almost always below 40%. And then about 2005, it started to skyrocket. It went from 40 to 80 by 2019, and it went from 80 to 100% in 2020, and it's forecasted to be about 106%. So as a percentage, we're spending more. Now, uh, if we look at, though, at, at financial assets relative to the GDP, they have skyrocketed too. So we've seen a long recovery here. I mean, everybody knows that's listening to this that in the last dozen years or, or more, their real estate has gone way up in value. Their stock markets have gone way up in value. Probably the value of their businesses, if they own that, maybe your wages have gone up uh, commensurate. But certainly, stock market real estate assets have had quite the run for a long time. And we're seeing that show itself in the uh, ratio of financial assets to the GDP. Talk about the year in review with Brian Evans of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. Brian, let's talk about the Fed and interest rates. Yeah, so uh, the Fed lends money to uh, banks. They, they lend it to people. And so the Fed has been trying to keep that really low to stimulate the economy so the banks can lend it out at low rates and people want to borrow it. Now, they're planning on slowing that down and they're, they're going to increase rates uh, going forward and, and that we should see several rate increases. And, and I just want to mention that. One thing about the Fed is they've been they've been buying so many bonds and buying and lending out so much money that their balance sheet, which is really tough to understand, has just ballooned. I mean, it's it's gone from four trillion uh, five years ago, and now it's uh, over eight, close to nine trillion dollars. Uh, so they put a lot of stimulus into the economy. I guess it's the economy's you know rip roaring along even through COVID. So I guess that can be a, considered a good thing, but that's going to slow down. The next slide I want to talk about is interest rates and inflation. Uh, we know that we have inflation. I've been talking about this. Uh, I mentioned at the break, Jeff, all year mm-hmm. that we have not been getting a straight scoop on inflation all year long. I was saying that inflation was much higher. It wasn't transitory, as every politician was trying to seemingly was trying to tell us that was not the case. And she Sure enough, uh, we're having record inflation. And I think it's going to continue to go up, personally. They didn't want us to panic, so, but uh, I wish they'd just told us the truth. Uh, but that's a, a political statement there. But uh, nominal yields of inflation are high. Now, interest rates are still relatively low. Interest rates are, you know, the interest you pay on a loan to the, the government. Uh, that's that's you know, interest rates on that we pay them when they issue bonds. That's different from inflation. And that yield right, right now is about 1.5% at the end of 2021, uh, the 10-year Treasury. But the actual nominal yield, because inflation is so high, the nominal yield is closer to negative 4. So if you buy a 10-year Treasury saying, well, I'm going to earn interest to offset inflation, well, you're going to end up in the hole because inflation is higher than the interest you're receiving on that loan. 
Brian, let's talk about the fixed income market dynamics. Yeah, so uh, as I mentioned, interest rates on bonds are really low at the end of 2021. Uh, we're seeing yields, uh, the 10 years, about 1.5%. The 30 years, under 2%. The average corporate yields, a little over 2 Even high yield, which is junk bonds, are barely over 4%. So yields on, on bonds are, are really low, which has been pretty consistent of late. I don't know that that's going to change dramatically. It, it, it is different from inflation, as I mentioned. It's how much you're going to receive in interest by investing into bonds. That's different from how much you're paying for goods and services. So as I mentioned, uh, interest rates relatively low on, on U.S. Uh, government debt. Uh, the the two-year is, is under 1%. As I mentioned, 30-year is under 2%. Now let's take a look at international bond yields. I'm always surprised by that sometimes. So the, the yield on the, the globe, excluding the United States, is just over 1%. And the average yield on U.S. bonds is about 1.75. So what's interesting to me is that the government has to pay more in interest, a higher yield to attract investors than the rest of the world combined does, which is kind of weird because that says to me that uh, investors believe the rest of the world is a better credit risk than the U.S. government. So just a little tidbit I, I took from that. Japan, you're going to get uh, 0.18% at the end of the year. Germany, next to zero. Italy and Spain, you know, Spain, 0.32. That's all they have to pay to attract mm-hmm. money, 0.32. The U.S. government, 1.75 on average. That's crazy to me, but uh, that's the way it is. Uh, European corporate bonds are only paying a half of a percent. It's really something. Now, one of the interesting things about the bond market to me is the size of the bond market. It is enormous. In trillions of dollars, the size of the uh, global bond market is over $130 trillion. The U.S. has $48 trillion of that, corporate and government bonds, $48 trillion. Uh, developed markets, ex-U.S. are $54 trillion, and emerging markets, $34 trillion for a total, again, of over $130 trillion. We're talking to Brian Evans about the year in review last year, and these are a lot of graphs here that we're looking at, and Brian is making some sense of those and explaining them to us. Next one, Brian, is fixed income sector returns. Yeah, on the fixed income sectors, I mentioned the yields are really low. Now, the returns were also low last year because the, the return on a bond is a combination of its, its yield and any effect that changes in interest rates have on its valuation. So it can be two different things that affect it. What's interesting is uh, the one that did the best was Treasury Inflation Protected, which you would expect when we start having inflation. And so that one actually did well, even though it has a negative yield when you buy it. It's just a weird thing. It's tough to, to buy for me in the bond market right now. I look at some of these yields, I go, why would I put my money in Spain at 0.27%? It just makes no sense to me to, to do a lot of that. But that's, that's the world we live in. The average bond yield or total yield with return, the average return of bonds last year was actually slightly negative. So we know markets did well. Real estate generally did well. Stock markets generally did very well. Also, the bond market generally did not do very well last year at all. A lot of the different bond holdings I'm looking at right here went negative last year. And we've been saying that for a while on the show that uh, bonds are certainly, uh, it's not an opinion, they are less attractive 
based on their facts and figures than they have been in the past because yields are so low that for you to make money on bonds, you need uh, interest rates to drop. And most of the people that listen to this or that I talk to uh, don't believe interest rates are going to head down from the point they are right now. You're listening to Brian Evans of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. This is our annual year in review show. Once again, if you're listening to the program and you would like a complimentary, no cost, no obligation financial review, you have at least $500,000 or more to invest. We invite you to call 844-MADRONA to request that review, 844-MADRONA. You can also request your review online at madronafinancial.com. You're listening to Growing Your Wealth. We'll take a quick break. Be right back with more of our show after this. Do you ever worry if your CPA and financial advisor are on the same page? You won't have to if you call Madrona Financial Services at 844-MADRONA or visit them at madronafinancial.com. Now, back to Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans. Welcome back to the show. I'm Brian Evans, CEO of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. In this segment, we're going to continue our discussion of the year in review from J.P. Morgan. And once again, Brian, I mean, we're looking at graphs here, and I certainly am happy that you're sitting next to me making some sense of this. I mean, when you look at it on paper, it, it makes some sense, but it is really valuable to have you uh, fill in the details. So let's continue our segment by talking about the global equity markets. Yeah, I wanted to start with the relative size of the markets. So if we added up all of the publicly traded companies in the world and said, all right, what percentage of that is just U.S.? It's over 60%. That number used to be, it wasn't that many years ago, that number was in the 40s. So the United States is more and more becoming the dominant financial company source in the world, even more so than in the past. And we've heard about, you know, China and India and all these other countries growing, growing, growing. But as of right now, they, they don't they don't make up what, what the U.S. does. So if we look at, again, the U.S. compared to the other areas, so if we're at 61 percent, Europe and, and other developed countries are at 13 percent. Emerging markets, which include China, India, Russia, Brazil, etc., 11%. Japan is at 6%, Canada at 3 and that's kind of it. Uh, again, the United States, 61%. So I thought that was a very interesting. So as you're thinking about the design of your portfolio relative to where you have your money, you might go, gosh, I got half my money in the U- U.S. Is that too much? Well, based on the average of, you know, if you just bought the all-world index, uh, that would be an underweight to the United States because it's sitting at 61%. I'm not saying you should invest more or less than that. I'm just saying that's what it is. Now, as we look at the the returns, uh, you know, the United States had had a, a very, very good year this last year. But other regions of the world, if we look at uh, Europe, Asia, and the Far East, did very well too, double-digit returns. But emerging markets did not do well. They had no gains for the year uh, this last year. In fact, they had a, a loss in, in U.S. dollars. So, uh, again, the, the, the world stocks did okay. Uh, the United States did much better. On average, uh, certain countries did very well, like India, France, and UK and Russia, because of oil. But and then certain other countries, led by China and Brazil, did very poorly last year. So if you were heavy in China and Brazil, you're you're wishing you were heavier in the United States investments. So I guess you could say, Brian, there's no place like home. Let's move on to cycles of U.S. equity outperformance. Yeah, what I wanted to talk about there was, yeah, you mentioned no place like home. Certainly in 2021. 
Now, let's look before 2021. You got to go all the way back to about 2007 or 8 before the global stock market outperformed the U.S. stock market on an annual basis. So the U.S. stock market's been outperforming international stocks for a very, very, very long time. Now, some people might be contrarian and say, well, that can't go on forever. But if you said that five years ago, you would have been wrong for the next five years, for sure, because it just keeps happening. It's a 14-year run of outperformance. And uh, prior to that, there was a seven-year run for foreign stocks being better than U.S. stocks. That was about... Oh, the year 2000 through the year 2008-ish, uh, right in there, uh, international stocks outperformed. Prior to that, there was a six-year run of U.S. stocks outperforming. And so it kind of goes in, and there's a lot of long segments where one will outperform the other, but there's never been something that we've just seen of a 14-year outperformance of U.S. stocks over foreign stocks. Brad, let's move on to international valuations and dividend yields. Yeah, so one of the things that would, would happen from that is if you're a valuation person, you're saying, well, that tells me that international stocks are, are way undervalued. And, you know, as we look at the price earnings ratios, the 20 year average of the price earnings ratio of the SP 500 is, you know, 15, 16, 17 times earnings. The world stocks, excluding the U.S., is more like 13. Well, where are they at now? Well, right now, as I mentioned, the current price earnings ratio for 2022 projected is about 21 times earnings for the S&P 500. It's only about 14 times earnings for the world stocks. So you would say based on that, oh, it sounds like the, uh, the global stocks are a bargain relative to the U.S. Again, that leaves out the growth of earnings. So the countries, remember our, when I mentioned there were 10 companies that make up a, almost a third of the S&P 500. Those are Tesla, again, uh, Amazon, Google, Apple, Microsoft, those kinds of companies. And their growth has been outpacing the average foreign stock growth. And so that's why, uh, that's a big reason why the price earnings ratios seem high. But uh, that's the relative. So relative, again, the U.S. stock market about 21 times earnings projected, the world stock market about 14 times. We're talking about the year in review with Brian Evans of Madrona Financial. Of course, we're talking about the year that was 2021. Brian, let's move on to international equity earnings and valuations. Yeah, so we can break that down even a little bit further. Uh, again, the U.S. Is, is at 21. Its long-term average is about 17. So based on that stat, again, it says that the U.S. is overvalued, but it doesn't include the growth of earnings. Uh, Europe is uh, right about their long-term average, their their 25-year average, about 15 times earnings. Japan is trading well below their 25-year average. They're at about 15 times earnings, but they've been averaging about 20. Uh, emerging markets are ab- about at their 25-year average, as is China. Uh, so all of them are, you know, they're they're pretty much in line as far as their earnings and uh, with with where they've been historically, except for the U.S. But you know, I, I think as the world uh, transitions, and I've been talking about this for for years on the on the show. As we add a massive middle class that didn't exist there, and as we have technological advancements, we can kind of throw the stats out the window because we're comparing. I, I talk about 25 years you know, uh, ago, and I'm thinking, okay, late 90s. Uh, was I even using a cell phone then, or <laughs> was I on the internet? I, right. I have to think about it because sure. there were many times in during my professional career where I didn't have either. Yeah. And so it was a completely different world. You know, when you look at, uh, historically, sometimes these graphs, you got to take that into account. 
want. Everything has changed, and everything's going to change at a rapid rate. I was talking to some young people lately, and they were kind of teasing me about not knowing about some stuff, and I, I was laughing at them. And what are you laughing at? I said, "Well, you're you know you're 30 years old. In about 10 years, you're going to be a dinosaur. <laughs> you're you're going to be so left behind by people younger than you. You won't be able to keep up because the rate of change is so fast." And you're like, "Oh my gosh, you're right. Yeah, you're going to be old way before I'm going to be considered old because because of the rate of change." And and I see that happening with with corporations and companies where we spend our money. I mean, think about your budget and think about the top 10 in the S&P 500. Uh, those companies didn't matter to you 25, 30, 40 years ago at all. And now you're spending money on stuff you didn't even know existed 20 years ago. So it, everything's going to change at a rapid rate. Brian, let's move on to the emergence of the emerging market middle class. Yeah, that's a mouthful there. But uh, as I mentioned, that uh, one of the biggest reasons why the stock, you know, U.S. stocks are are able to increase their profit margins so much is besides the technological advances is the emergence of the middle class globally. And so as we look at historically, I, I found this graph to be very interesting and telling that however JP Morgan defines middle class, I won't get into that. I don't know and don't really care for this this purpose. But if we look at the change from 1995 to 2020, 1995 only 1% of India was considered middle class. Uh, Indonesia, four. None of China, zero. Hmm. Brazil was at 30%, and Mexico was at 40%. Okay. Now let's fast forward. Where are they now? Well, India went from one to 21. Indonesia, four to 30. China went from zero to 41%. That's a pretty big you know, jump. That's yeah. a big jump. I can't even do that percentage because it was zero. Brazil, 30 to 55, and Mexico, 40 to 73. Mm. Now, the projections are in 10 more years, India will be at the top at 79%, along with Mexico. And China will be at 72%. So we're going to continue to see. I mean, you think about that. Uh, between 1995 and the year 2030, the projection is India and China will go from 1% and 0% middle class to 79 and 72 Multiply that by the number of people. That's a big market yeah, to yeah. sell Apple phones to or mm-hmm. Starbucks coffee or yeah. whatever you're buying. So it's, it's a whole different world projected. New markets uh, coming up. Certainly technology is very easy to export. And so that's something that uh, we'll, we'll have our, 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 pulse, you know, our finger on the pulse of. But I thought that that was very telling as to why we think markets might continue to expand globally. Brian, let's uh, wrap up this segment by talking about time, diversifications, and the volatility of returns. Yeah, this this graph that I'm looking at here that I'll try and explain on the radio again here is, um, I think, very telling and very important graph because a lot of times people get a little oh, stuck on short-term returns. And uh, certainly there's a lot of people, probably you're listening right now, you go, yeah, I'm one of them because I watch the stock market all day or I check it every day and I have a reaction to it. Uh, I have fear and panic and stuff when it's way down. I have uh, not as much joy. It's like, okay, it's up today, but it'll probably be down tomorrow. Oh, no. You know, so we have a lot of short-term reactions. So if we even expand that to a one-year reaction and we look at the stock market, uh, over the last 20 years, you might have had a year where you lost 39%. You might have had a year where you gained 47%. 
that has been that has happened and everything in between over the last 20 years in the stock market and and that's only if you checked it once a year and then that's like wow that's that's quite the range there isn't it I, I say yeah it is let's say that you only checked the market once every five years what would you be your response well the worst five-year rolling period was you lost three percent you know well that's not great but that's not a disaster either. And so you could say, well, that uh, is what it is. The best uh, five-year rolling average was 28%. Everybody loves that. But now let's look at a 10-year rolling average. The, the worst 10-year rolling average of the stock market was a loss of 1%. So that would have been the lost decade. We call it uh, 2000 through 2009. Uh, the best was 19% a year. But now let's move it to a 20-year rolling average. This is where I thought it was really interesting. Let's say that you were someone that was able to set it and forget it, and you didn't look for 20 years, and you put all your money in the market. The worst-case scenario you would have had is a 6% average rate of return, excluding fees. The best return would have been a 17%. So if your worst is 6% before fees on a 20-year average, you might come to the conclusion that, well, based on historical numbers, stock market's a pretty good place to go if I don't mind getting 6% a year, which uh, seems like a, a decent return. Now, compare that to the bond market. The, the worst 20-year rolling average of bonds has been 1% a year. So that you know, that probably didn't excite you too much, uh, and the best was 12. So I just thought it was interesting that uh, based on rolling averages, it's very rare for somebody to lose very much money uh, ever in a five-year rolling average in the stock or the bond market. Uh, but it certainly can happen in a one-year. And if you're looking every day, obviously it happens a lot of days during the year. That's Brian Evans from Drone Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. We're talking about the annual year in review, the year 2021. If you're listening to the program today and you would like a complimentary, no cost, no obligation financial review, if you have $500,000 or more to invest, you're looking to hire a new financial advisor, call 844-MADRONA, 844-MADRONA to request your review. You can also request it online at madronafinancial.com. We'll take a quick break. Brian, be right back with the final portion of our show and our annual review right after this. Do you ever worry if your CPA and financial advisor are on the same page? You won't have to if you call Madrona Financial Services at 844-MADRONA or visit them at madronafinancial.com. Now, back to Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans. Welcome back to the show. I'm Brian Evans, CEO of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. And in this segment, we're going to wrap up our discussion of the year in review of 2021 uh, based on a report put out by J.P. Morgan. And Brian, let's move ahead here to diversification and the average investor. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to break down markets. Uh, you know, one of our shows is always define the market. Mm -hmm. There's five big areas that someone can invest in, and that would start with the biggest, which is the bond market the global bond market. The second biggest is the global equities market. The third is the global investment real estate market. Uh, I like to put the fourth as the insurance market being uh, annuities and life insurance as an asset class. And then finally, cash and cash equivalents is the fifth one. So those are my big five because people might come to me and they say, well, I want to invest my money. It's in cash. It's not earning anything. I, I don't like annuities. I'm not sure why. I don't want to buy any real estate. That's kind of risky. I don't want stocks and bonds don't look very attractive. What have you got for me? I, got, I don't know. <laughs> cash. 
I, well, you didn't want to be in cash, so right, I, right, right. I, I don't okay. know what to tell you. They're, those sure. are the big five. So I kind of want to look at, relative to that, what have been the returns for the last 20 years of these asset classes before fees? And out of those five areas, and now I'll, I'll pull insurance out of this because that's a whole different animal. It comes with uh, you know guarantees, lifetime cash flow, floors, and so forth. So we'll pull that out, and we'll just leave this to cash and cash equivalents, bonds, equities, and real estate. So in the last 20 years, uh, the highest performing asset class of all of those was REITs, real estate. And so that, that's kind of interesting because a lot of people, some people shy away. A lot of advisors shy away from doing real estate because they go, oh, no, I just do stock market and bond market. I'm like, well, uh, real estate offers a nice yield relative to bonds and has done better than stocks and bonds on average over the last 20 years. You might want to consider that in your portfolio. Just a comment there. And I'm not going to tell anybody on the radio what they should go do going forward because this is a backward-looking graph I'm looking at. This last 20 years uh, of the major areas, REITs did, did the best. Emerging markets uh, were second. And uh, I just said the emerging markets lost money last year. So, uh, you know, take it for what it's worth. But over 20 years, they've done well. And why is that? Well, because of that graph I told you just, just in the last segment, uh, where India and China had 1%, 0% in the middle class. And now, you know, they're, they're so much higher. And so, and they're projected to be over 70% each in, by the year 2030. The emergence of the emerging markets for 20 years has been why that's really high. Um, after that, you've got small caps and high yields, and then the S&P 500. Now, developed markets haven't done as well. Uh, bonds are next on the list uh, going down as far as your average rate of return for the last 20 years. Uh, houses is next, uh, unless you own one in the Pacific Northwest, and guarantee you that's much higher than the national uh, or international average. What I find really interesting is that before fees, the average investor has earned 2.9% annualized return over the last 20 years. And that's probably because we chase returns. We go, oh, I, I see something went way up last year. I should buy that and sell what went down. And, and as an investor, often we, we should do the opposite. Or you know, maybe you got some bad advice on something, and, and, or maybe you're, you're not in things you, you just didn't understand, like real estate or whatever. But uh, that uh, average investor, about 2.9%. Inflation is average 2.1%. It's much, much higher now. Uh, of course, and cash is average 1.4. It's much, much lower today. And commodities has actually had a, had a loss for the last 20 years uh, annualized. Brian, you were talking about the 20-year annualized returns by asset class, and you were talking about homes 3.7%, except here in the Pacific Northwest. And I figure, you know, if you bought a house in 2002 versus what it's worth here in 2022, it's got to be uh, over 100%, don't you think? Oh, yeah. yeah of course it is. And and I, I, I'm glad you, you brought that up because these are averages. This is not your returns. Mm -hmm. This is not returns of me or my clients. These are just averages from a report put out by J.P. Morgan. They put out a great report every year, every quarter, in fact, uh, market update. Uh, Dr. David Kelly, I really appreciate what they put out, and, and it gives me a lot of data. 
um, you know, putting a lot of people to sleep. But, you know, I love getting this this report. My advisors love this report. They're always, hey, has that report come out yet? Mm-hmm. So it has a, a great, great amount. So shout out to J.P. Morgan. Thank you for, for offering that to us that we can discuss some of the information in this. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, this includes uh, my, my favorite one, Dayton, Ohio. This includes, <laughs> you know, yeah, right. uh, different parts of the country that maybe didn't do as well with real estate as this part of the country did. So these are just averages. Again, uh, you may have had terrible real estate investments. I just mm-hmm. said it, it did great in the last 20 years. You may have terrible stock investments. You ha- may have stock investments that went way up. Uh, I don't know who I'm talking to here. I'm on, the, you know, We're on the radio. Right. So these are just averages. And I just wanted to point that out. And we joke about Dayton, Ohio, because that's where I'm from. And if I look back there at real estate, I mean, you paid $100,000 for a house in 2002. It's probably up to $105,000 today. <laughs> right. <so. laughs> but God bless the people of Dayton, Ohio. Let's move on to cash account returns, Brian. Yeah, uh, that one of the big five that I mentioned was cash and cash equivalents. We, we talk about real estate a lot on the show, Delaware Statutory Trust, all that different 1031 exchanges, private non-traded REITs, uh, different kinds of investments like that. We talk about stock markets. We talk about bonds and interest rates and what that is. We talk about yield uh, annuities, you know, insurance company products like annuities that might have lifetime cash flow or guarantees against losses or life insurance as an asset class. So those are all big areas. We don't spend a lot of time talking about cash and cash equivalents. And I, you know, I wanted to mention that right now because it used to be real easy when you retired. You had a bunch of money and you didn't want to take risk. Well, you know what? I'll just put it into a CD. So during the 90s and the early 2000s, the average earnings on a savings account, a liquid savings account, were between 4 and 6% throughout that time period. So all the way through 2001, you could get it, you know, roughly what we'll call the average 5%. So you have a, a million dollars, say, well, I'm just going to live on the $50,000 of interest on my savings account and my Social Security, and I'll be just fine. Well, fast forward to 2009. 2009, 2010, instead of getting 50000 a year, you were getting uh, less than 10000 a year. And that figure has steadily dropped. 2016, instead of 50000 a year, it looks like you're getting about 3000 a year. <laughs> and currently, on that million-dollar investment, you'd be getting $700 a year instead of the fifty thousand you'd planned on, if that's what your plan was, and you didn't adjust along the way. Wow, Int- you know, interest rates on savings accounts and and cash and cash equivalents have just hit an all time low. And again, it used to be easy to do safe investing. That's why we spent so much time talking about annuities and life insurance on this program, mm-hmm. is because of that figure seven hundred dollars on a million dollar investment. Wow. Honestly, you know, I, I can't rely on a cash and cash equivalents to take me through to retirement long term. No, you can't. That's why we have to look to, uh, to other alternatives instead. Brian, let's uh, wrap up our year in review show by talking about yield alternatives, domestic and global. So as we talk about yields, uh, what are some of the different yields of the, of the different areas? Well, right now, uh, yields on U.S. equities are about one and a half percent. Uh, growth stocks aren't even 1%. So I'm talking dividend yields when I talk yields on stocks. The U.S. aggregate bond market is about 1.8%. So if you buy the the bond uh, aggregate bond mutual fund or ETF, you're going to get a yield of about 1.8%. That does not include the price 
changes due to changes in interest rates. So as I mentioned, uh, if interest rates go up, uh, you'll lose money on bonds. But your starting point is 1.8% because that's the yield on bonds. So it's it's pretty low. And we can go internationally. They might get a couple more percent. The, the highest yielding stock and bond investments are emerging market debt. Well, that's lending money to countries that are not that developed. And so that's that's risky. Uh, preferreds, which is a a corporate uh, thing that is preferred ab- ab- above normal bondholders, which is preferred above stockholders, but uh, carries some risk there. And then uh, the the third one at, at just over four percent again is U.S. high yields. Another name for high yields is junk bonds, and so we have to be careful about putting too much money into that. Uh, global rates are only about 3% yield right now. So that yield has come way down. And, and that, that kind of ties into my discussion early when I started all this this hour about the stock market. The stock market price earnings ratio is high relative to where it's been because uh, of, of changing expectations about that as has the global real estate yields. They've dropped too. People have changed how, you know, it used to be you, you expected to get, you know, seven, six, seven, eight percent on your global REITs, and now they're averaging about 3%, and people are still investing in them. So expectations have changed, and so I just wanted to kind of mention that, that uh, these are all figures, facts and figures that we talked about today, but the underwriting uh, theme in all of this is that expectations have changed in the big asset classes, bond yields, cash and cash equivalents, uh, insurance company products, real estate, and stock markets. And that's our year in review of 2021 with Ryan Evans of Madrona Financial Services. And I don't know, Brian, but I'm looking forward to an even better 2022. If you are looking to hire a new financial advisor and you've got at least $500,000 or more to invest, we invite you to call Madrona Financial to get your complimentary financial review. 844-MADRONA is the number to call. And of course, you can request your review online at madronafinancial.com. Brian, out of time for this week. Thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us this week. I want to thank our listeners as well, too, for joining us. For Brian Evans, I'm Jeff Shade. Get out, have a great day. We'll talk to you again next week with another edition of Growing Your Wealth. No statements made during the Growing Your Wealth radio show shall constitute tax, legal, or accounting advice. You should consult your own legal or tax professional on your individual information. Brian Evans of Madrona Financial Services is licensed to offer investment advisory services through Madrona Financial Services, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Insurance products are offered through Madrona Insurance Services, LLC, a licensed insurance agency and an affiliate of Madrona Financial Services. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Investors cannot invest directly into indexes. No investment strategy, including asset allocation or diversification, guarantees a profit or guarantees the avoidance of loss. Financial planning is an important tool that does not guarantee specific outcomes.